Okay, hello everybody. Good to see you all. Good to be with you. Um, we just finished up a few weeks talking about where Jesus says that we are salt and light. He said to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We spent a few weeks talking about that. Um, I first gave the theological and biblical underpinnings of that. How does that fit into the whole story of God going back all the way to creation? What was Jesus calling us to there? What was he saying? We talked about that. And then you'll remember that David Kinneman, the president of Barna Research Group, was here. Talked about what it means to be salt and light in a culture that sees Christians as irrelevant and extreme. How we can embrace that and be salt and light even in the midst of that cultural milieu. And then last week, of course, was Global Vision Sunday, where we talked about uh, the vision that God has given us as reality to reach the unreached, to take the name and the good news about Jesus to where it's never been before. So if you weren't here last week and this is your church, it was incredibly important for you to understand that vision, uh, to embrace it, to be a part of it. So if you were not here last week, please go to the website and watch that presentation. Very important. We are casting vision for our church for the next 10 to 20 years. And we are going all in on taking the name and the good news about Jesus Christ to people who have never heard it before. So we want you to be in on that. Yeah, praise God for that. And then we don't want to forget about local mission, though. We don't want us to think that missions is just something that somebody else does over there and only a few of us will go. We want to remember to live our lives out as sent people here locally, okay? That's a huge part of our vision as a church, that we see ourselves as sent people, that we live out Christ's mission uh, as who we are amongst whom we know in the midst of what we do with the skills that we currently have in the place that we live. So that's really important for us. That's also a key vision of our church. We won't be teaching on it during uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but we wanted to recommend to you a book that explains it perfectly. It only happens to be my book, but forget about that. <laughs> forget about that. Godspeed uh, is really our book. Bruce and Sherry, you guys are in this book. So many of you guys are in this book. This is very much a story of how God called us to be sent people as a church and the way that we've been living that out. So uh, nobody has been buying this book, so the publisher gave us a great deal. They had a warehouse full of them, and they emailed and said, here, we'll give you these for next to nothing. So we're passing them on to you. I figured if my own church won't read my own book, then nobody will, but we're going to give you a whack. Um, This is so shameless, but it's really not. It really is our vision for local mission as a church. So we have these available for you today. You can pick them up or not. Okay, that was awkward. (laughs) Nobody should ever do what I just did. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew chapter 5. We continue in the Sermon on the Mount. The title of today's message is Getting the Story of God's Law Right. Getting the Story of God's Law Right. Today is a really important teaching from Scripture, a really challenging passage that we've got before us in the Sermon on the Mount here. Really, really important. Now, I'm going to call you guys to really pay attention this morning. I I know you usually do, Um, but I'll I'll just be honest. Today's sermon is going to be somewhat tedious and boring. How's that sound? (laughs) See, I do things that no pastor should ever do. Buy my book, and here's a boring sermon. Don't you? 
Uh, I wouldn't go to this church. Anyway, uh, but, but it's important for our understanding. I don't mean that the text is tedious and boring. I mean probably my sermon is just some things we have to explain because if, if we misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, we miss the whole point of Scripture. We miss the whole thing. And the church has often in different places through different times missed this. So we need to not miss this. We need to make sure that we get this and, and pay attention today. So we're going to go all the, to all the way to the end of chapter 5, a lot of verses. We won't read them all right now. We'll just read verses 17 through 20, which is where we find ourselves in the text. Verses 17 through 20. Jesus says in Matthew three seventeen, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in your holy word. And as your people, as your church, as a church, we place ourselves under it, under its authority, under its teaching. We believe it to be... um, inerrant and infallible, fully authoritative, the only rule and authority for all that we believe, the way that we live, what the church is. So we ask that today we be people who are formed by your word, obedient to your word. So give us understanding, please, Lord. Help us to understand what it is, Jesus, that you're saying to us and the implications of it for our lives. Help us to to comprehend today and to follow. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would please, by your Holy Spirit, for your own glory, anoint me now to communicate in a way that is clear and helpful, honest and faithful to you. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, a lot of the world, when they think about the idea of getting into heaven, a lot of the world just thinks in general, if I'm good enough, if I obey enough, or if I do enough good things, at the end, they're going to let me in. That's generally the way that the world thinks. Part of what Christianity does is enlighten us to the error of that way of thinking. But what many Christians then do is think, well, I have the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, so now it doesn't really matter what I do since I'm forgiven and all is grace, so I can just live how I want. So a lot of the world thinks, gosh, if I don't obey, I'm not going to make it in. And then a lot of Christianity thinks, well, having made it in, now I could kind of do whatever I want. And our scripture addresses those erroneous ideas and helps us to think rightly about that. Helps us to get the story of God's law right. You'll notice in verse 17 that Jesus has shifted gears rather abruptly. He said in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who is in heaven. And then he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law. 
It seems like a rather abrupt transition. It seems as though maybe someone has asked the question now while he's giving this sermon, well, what about the law? Right, because he started this sermon, his theme statement, his first line was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Meaning the spiritually bankrupt, those who have no moral cred or merit before God. He's been explaining in the sermon that God's blessing comes to the unexpected and the undeserved. And then he's saying that the representatives of God on earth are not the religious elite, rather they're the broken. We all know that those who were following Jesus were the prostitutes and the drunkards and the sinners like we. And so it would seem that someone may have interjected at this point, some religious listener, but but what about the law, Jesus? What about righteousness that comes from the law? What about obedience? And what about getting it right? And what about doing it right? I think that someone may have outright asked that question because of sort of the abrupt change in subject matter that uh, Jesus has here. Or he may have anticipated the question. We see that frequently in the Gospels, that Jesus anticipates what a crowd was thinking or what a person was about to say. Or he might just have known this is what people are going to think. In light of him explaining that God's blessing comes to the undeserved, unexpected, and the representation of God on earth was not with the religious elite, but with the broken who have put their faith in Jesus. What about righteousness that comes from the law? So Jesus says, do not think, right? Very much like he's anticipating that question. Hey, don't, don't think in light of what I'm saying. Again, verse 17, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, what is he saying here? When he says the law and the prophets, that's an Old Testament Jewish way of saying the Old Testament, right? Or, or even a New Testament way. In the New Testament, when you hear law and prophets, they're referring to the whole Old Testament. Even today, if you talk to a Jewish person, the law and the prophets, it's just a way of referring to the Old Testament. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. It's not as though, as many people think, that we have the God of the Old Testament and the Old Testament, but that didn't work out, so Jesus came, and that's all out, and now it's different, right? A a lot of people think that way. Jesus is saying, that's not the case. I didn't come to abolish it. It's not as though that was wrong, God's getting do-over, and so I've came to clean it up. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Notice also that he has a high view of the Old Testament, Many people today don't have a very high view of the Old Testament or its content. Jesus did. He affirms the immutability, that is unchanging nature, big theology word there, the unchanging nature of God's word in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. It's another way of saying, or we might say very rudely, until hell freezes over. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stro- or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. It's eternal. It's unchanging. It's binding. It's valid. He holds a high view of it in verse 19. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. Some real warning there to those who would discount the Old Testament. But the point of what he's saying is, listen, the Old Testament is still important. It's still valid. And I am actually the fulfillment of everything that you read about in the law and the prophets. Now, that was an enormous claim in the ears of the hearers. 
because that was their Bible. And here's Jesus saying, I'm, everything that you read in that points toward me. All the sacrifices, Jesus is saying, were a prefigure, a picture pointing toward Jesus who would come as the ultimate lamb of God, the sacrifice for our sins. All of the morality represented there is made in some total in the person of Jesus. All of the prophecies there were ultimately about Jesus. All of the imagery that we find throughout the Old Testament, the entire story finds its fulfillment, its consummation, its ultimate expression, its continuation in the person of Jesus. Now, this is not new to us. Matthew has been telling us that from chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew has been telling us that Jesus didn't just drop out of the sky, out of the blue without any context and say, hey, now there's a new way to God. That's not what happened. He stepped into the flow of God's story. He's the continuation of it, the fulfillment, the goal, the consummation. He steps into the context of God's story, how God is working to save humanity from, as we've been talking about, loving creation, God acting in loving creation, sinful rebellion, humanity acting in sinful rebellion, gracious redemption, God acting in gracious redemption, and then the work of restoration, God and man working together to see the world restored. Jesus is the continuation of the story. Matthew wants to make sure that we get that. And now Jesus himself wants to make sure that we get the story of the law. The same is true with the law as it was with Christ. It didn't just come out of the blue somewhere back in the story in the Old Testament. There's a context to it. It's part of what God is doing. This is really important for us to understand. At one point in the story, in the Old Testament, was the law given? At what point was the law given? Well, before we ever get to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, We have a book and a half, Genesis and half of Exodus, of the story of God working graciously and redemptively amongst humanity and Israel. Before we ever get to Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, we have this whole story of loving creation, sinful rebellion, gracious redemption, the work of restoration. If we follow the flow of the story before that, we find that before God ever gave Israel the law, before he gave them the rules, he gave them himself in loving relationship. We see the story, though there was chastening and discipline and difficulty, we see ultimately a story of God's blessing, undeserved, unexpected blessing, God's protection. We see the promises and the fulfillment of what God would say. And we see in the Exodus, the ultimate picture of redemption, of deliverance, of salvation. Before God ever gave us the law, God gave us himself in the work of redemption is how the story goes in the Old Testament. So that when we get to Mount Sinai and Israel's camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai and God is going to give them the law. Moses is going to go up. He's going to get the Ten Commandments written on tablets, 10 of the 613. When we get to Mount Sinai, God is sure to remind Israel of the story. Before he gives them the rules, he says, let's not forget where we're at in this whole thing. Look what he says in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt 
and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. See how God is reminding them of the story, right? The next verse, he says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then he's going to give them the law and the covenant and all those things. But first he says, don't forget, I am your redeemer. I am the God of grace who loves you. I myself rescued you. I am the one who helps those who cannot help themselves. Now that I have redeemed you, and then he goes on to give them the law and call them to obedience. Please notice what he did not do. When Israel was enslaved, he did not go to them and say, now, here's the rule, here's the laws. If you will obey me and do really well and work hard and act correctly, then I will come and save you. That's not what he did. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He rescued them from slavery and then said, now here is how you live in light of having been rescued. Do you see how the story is going? Do you see how the story is going? He saved them. And then ask them to keep the law in response. This is the way that the story has unfolded through Jesus in our lives. Right? We we know this. You know this. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't know this, this is the best thing you've ever heard right now. You ready? Get ready. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in Jesus. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift, operative word there. Isn't that a great word, gift? It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, right? Or keeping the rules. So that no one may boast. Pause right there. Isn't that crystal clear? It's the same story that we were just talking about from the Old Testament. We didn't do it. God did it. We didn't earn it. God did it in spite of us. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of your works. But look what he says now. It's just like the story in the Old Testament. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. The word there is masterpiece in the Greek. You are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Do you see how it's the same story unfolding? We're saved by grace. It's a gift of God, not according to works. We are not saved by works, but it goes on to say, we are saved for good works. Get that. Say it with me. Not saved by works. We are saved for good works. That's the way that the story is unfolding. Just as we saw him at Mount Sinai, tell them, now remember, I brought you out of Egypt. Now, here's how you ought to live in light of that. The law was brought to Israel in the context of God's gracious redemption of them. I'm going to show you a quote right now. And in that is a book recommendation. And no, I didn't write it. This was written by Christopher Wright. It is an excellent book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. It will be really helpful for you to understand all these things that we're talking about, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He says, the law was never intended, get that, never intended as a means of achieving salvation, but rather as guidance for responding to salvation by living in a way that pleased the God who had saved you. That 
is crystal clear. That is why when we get to the Ten Commandments, they don't begin with a commandment. They actually begin with a statement. Look what God says at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Before he gives them the law, he reminds them once again, just half a chapter later of the flow of the story. That is why when a Jewish son would ask his father what the law meant, the father would explain what the law meant by reminding or telling the child of the story of God's gracious redemption of us. Right, look what it says in Deuteronomy. In the future, when your son asks you, Dad, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, well, son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised and on oath to our ancestors. Continuing. So the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Now that is important stuff. When your son asks you, what with all these laws that God gives us, you are to respond with the story of God graciously redeeming us from slavery. In other words, the, under, the right understanding of the law is that obedience flows from grace. It doesn't buy it. The very meaning of the law was found in the story of the gospel. Now notice what, I'll put the verse back up, please, Diane, thank you. Notice what the father says at the end. Verse 25, and if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Now, there is a righteousness that belongs to us who obey. That will be our righteousness, he says. But remember the story. They were not saved according to any righteousness they had. They didn't even have the law yet. They were saved because of God's righteousness and God's character and God's love. They hadn't earned anything with their righteousness. But now for their own good, verse 24, that we might always prosper, God calls them to live a certain way. And if they do, he said, that will be our righteousness. Now, our righteousness, we got to understand that phrase. We interpret scripture with the rest of Scripture. That's how you're meant to read the Bible and understand the Bible. So that's why we talk so much about how the story unfolds. We're supposed to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So what we know is that that righteousness that comes from obeying the law is not a righteousness that saves because God had already saved them. 
And obedience flows from grace. It does not buy it. If you could buy it, it wouldn't be grace. Can I get a witness? So Paul addresses this in Philippians when he's talking about our righteousness that comes from the law. Look what he says in Philippians. He's going to use the phrase in the confidence in the flesh, meaning the things that we do that we might think earned us some good standing before God. He says, put no confidence in the flesh, your own works of righteousness. Now he's going to boast a little bit. He's going to sell his own book. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day, not a big deal to you probably, but a big deal in that culture. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, that was like the tribe to be from. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You'll remember before he was converted. Listen to this now. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. Pause right there. You see? Just like the father said to the son back in Deuteronomy, there would be a righteousness that was ours from obeying the law. And Paul says, I honestly, dude, I was killing it. When it comes to that, I was slaying it. Then he goes on to say next verse, but whatever things were gained to me, those things that he just talked about, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, listen very carefully, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the righteousness that saves. And it is explicitly not our righteousness. We have a practice righteousness of obedience that comes in light of in response to because of gratitude toward the fact that we have been saved by grace. And God has shown us how to live and so we go that way. But it's never because of anything that we could do. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Romans 9 is explicit. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, Through the law, we become conscious of our sins, conscious of our sins. Now, if you've carefully followed that, you know how the underpinnings, the clear clear background to understand what Jesus says in verse 20, when he says, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. We know because of the rest of the Bible that he cannot be saying you have to obey better than even a Pharisee or you will never be saved. Paul already told us that's not true. The story going all the way back to Genesis and Exodus shows us what that, isn't, that that isn't true. Again, Jesus is anticipating or has heard the question here, well, what about the law? 
I hear you saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I hear you saying that the blessing of God comes to the unexpected and the undeserved. But what about those who do deserve? There's a question in the background. And to them, he says, I'm telling you, unless your righteousness is even greater than the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not going to get in. In other words, if that is the way that you're trying to get in, it's never going to work. You're aiming too low. That isn't the way that it works. Obedience flows from grace. It doesn't buy it. This is the right motivation for obedience, a response to God's kindness. The good news of the story is that we don't have to try to obey to be loved by God like the world thinks. We obey because we are so loved by God. That's why we obey, which takes away that whole thing of, well, I'm already saved. Why obey? All is forgiven. All is grace. No, 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 no. To the world, we say, listen, you don't have to try to behave well to be loved by God. You are already loved by God. So the Christian, we say we obey because we are so greatly loved by God. And by his love, in his love, God has shown us that we can trust him when it comes to obedience. You know, that's really the problem. Is we don't always trust God when he says this is the right way and this is the wrong way. Right, that, that's what was happening in the garden. That's exactly what was happening in the garden. God said, of all the, all the trees of the garden you may eat except for this one. And Eve said, well, it, forbidden fruit is sweeter. God, you must be trying to deprive me of something. You must be trying to take something away from me. When you talk to me about my sexuality, about my finances, about my relationships, about monogamy, you must be trying to take something away from me. The issue is trusting God for what he says is good for us. And hasn't God in his love and the story of gracious redemption proven that he has our good in mind? For he saved us when we were bad. Romans 5.8 says that God loves us, we know, because he gave his son Christ Jesus to die for us while we were yet sinners. So Israel was always reminded that they could trust God. Deuteronomy. And now Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today. Read it with me. For your own good. For your own good. What doesn't it say? So that you can be saved. So that you might look good. (gasps) didn't say that, for your own good, because we are the redeemed of the Lord, because of the love of the Lord and the grace of God. He has our good in mind, and so he calls us to it. Now, Israel, like me, like us, would get off track in this story frequently. They would get off track. And they would begin to live according to their own righteousness. They would think, well, I, I, got, I, I got to make it up. I, 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 I got to do better. And what Jesus is doing for Israel here is pulling the rug out from underneath their feet. Okay, boys and girls, I love you. If you think you're going to do better because you're obeying the law, if you think you're doing well and you deserve something from God, 
Let me give you the right perspective on the law. That's what he's going to do in the following verses. He's going to tell them that they're aiming too low. Scribes and the Pharisees were concerned with external observance. God is concerned with heart and motive. So Jesus is going to speak to their understanding of some of the issues of the law during that time and some of the tradition that had surrounded it. And he's going to use this phrase. You have heard it said, and then he'll say something that is either and sometimes both from the Old Testament or also Jewish tradition. And then he'll say, but I say to you. So he's correcting some of their understandings of what it, what it meant to live righteously according to the law. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is restoring the correct perspective on the law. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to read the following verses, okay? I'll read it out loud and lead us in it. But what I mean by that is I'm not going to explain them. I'm I'm going to resist even commenting on them. We have the understanding now of what Jesus is endeavoring to do, and we're just going to read them. Why? Because we're just going to let them be what they are. What are they? Hard words. We're going to let them be what they are. Really hard words from Jesus. Here's what I want to do, and this is what you will want me to do. You'll want me to explain away some of them. You'll want me to remove the pungency and the potency and the sting of some of them and say, well, if you understand the context and first century rabbinical teaching, then you'll know that what he really meant was... That's not what's supposed to happen. We're going to let them be what they are, which is really hard words. But remember, as we read them, they're not salvific. Jesus isn't saying, this is the way you get into the kingdom. You'll have lots of questions as we read through, as do I. I've been teaching the Bible for 20 years. I have a lot of questions about this. We're not going to address some. We will all, at one point or another, if we're listening, feel uncomfortable. I do. The areas that Jesus chooses to address here are very representative of how life is. It's going to talk about relational strife and discord. It's going to talk about lustfully looking at other people. It's going to talk about unqualified divorce. It's going to talk about the integrity of our words or lack thereof. It's going to talk about our desire to get even with those who have wronged us and our lame, selfish love. And he's going to present alternatives, a return to the way things are meant to be. He's going to suggest harmony and purity, lifelong faithfulness, integrity, humility, and selfless love. So let's read them. Starting in verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother Raka, that meant like empty head, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come 
and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. For it's better for that it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard, But the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's a throne of God, or by earth, for it's a footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great God. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. By the time Jesus got to that point in his sermon, Anyone who had been counting on their own righteousness as earning them something before God or gaining them entrance into the kingdom had just had the rug pulled out from underneath them. For who isn't guilty if that's the standard? And what Jesus doesn't do is say, oh, the Old Testament, it was so stringent. You know, things are different now. He actually says, well, you really didn't understand the Old Testament correctly. It's much more stringent than you thought. He ups the ante on it. And so as to be clear, he says in the last verse, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So the hearer of the sermon immediately wanted to run back to Jesus' theme statement, the first thing he said, when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For everyone who's listening now knows that they are poor in spirit. For who hasn't mishandled a relationship? Who hasn't lusted after another person? Who hasn't acted out of greed? Who hasn't refused to love the unlovely? Who hasn't wanted to get even? We all stand there guilty. And the only way that we stand before God is in grace. But what Jesus is also saying is don't throw away obedience because you've received grace. That's to short-circuit the story. The whole story is those who have received grace are now in light of that grace and forgiveness called to obedience. He says, if that's your standard, you'll never get into the kingdom. But once you're in the kingdom, this is how you live. Why? For your own good. For your own good, this is the way that you live. That's what Jesus is doing in this text. We are being shown how to live in God's kingdom. And Jesus is upholding the Old Testament. He's upholding the idea of fearing God and obeying God. He's upping the ante on our perspective. And he's calling us who have received forgiveness and grace to obey. Obedience as a true heart response to the mercy that's been given to us. And, final thought, obedience that is patterned after God himself. That's what he said in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what he said in Exodus 19, right before he gave the law. God said, therefore, you are to be holy as I am holy. That's what he's talking about in Matthew 5, 16, when he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what was intended in the garden when God said, let us make man in our own image. Our lives are to be pandered after the quality, the character, the morality, so to speak, of God himself. That's why we are known as Jesus followers. Christ is God in the flesh. And we want to follow him. And this, in the context of grace and forgiveness, is what it looks like. That's why the Holy Spirit is always working in us to form us and conform us to the image of Christ. This sort of morality pictured in the sermon is what God looks like. And this is what we're called to. God's grace is meant to provide the motive for obedience God himself is meant to be the model for obedience. This is a return to original intent. This is Jesus calling us back to the way things are supposed to be. So what do we do with this text? Well, we do two things. Number one, we rejoice in grace. For if we listen to the words of Jesus, we know we need it. We rejoice in the grace of God brought to us in Christ and the forgiveness of sins because of his sacrifice on the cross. I mean, we really let it thrill our hearts. 
And then we say, okay, having been forgiven, how do I need to adjust my life to go God's way? The Old Testament phrase was to walk in the ways of the Lord. For me, in light of this text, it's meant a lot of repentance. And then a lot of receiving forgiveness from God. And then adjustments. Let this form our lives. Why? For our own good. The God who made you and who loves you is showing us how to live in light of his truth, his law, and his grace. May God help us, help us to live as sons and daughters of the kingdom. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for, as we said, your abundant grace upon us. Thank you, Jesus, you are the fulfillment. You're the one who has redeemed us. And you're the only one who walks in perfect obedience. Help us in the areas of our lives where we're not walking according to your truth and your law. Thank you that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But there's freedom and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Lord, as we confess our sins, thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Teach us to confess and to repent and help us to receive grace and forgiveness. And help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with you, Jesus, to live different lives. Thank you that we cannot do it on our own but you've given us the power in the person of the Holy Ghost. Help us, help us, God. That our lights may shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.